I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Well, good morning and welcome to this week's edition of Football Digest. Um, I'm sure we're all looking forward to the Premier League getting back underway um, this weekend. Um, Before we do, though, before that gets underway, we'll have a look back um, at the international break uh, in the company of Simon Mullick from the Sunday Mirror, Matt Dunn from the Daily Express, myself, Andy Dunn from the Daily Mirror. Uh, morning, everyone. And as I say, we'll, we'll, we'll crack on with the Premier League um, sooner rather than later. But first of all, we have to record, Matt, you were there on, on Tuesday. Uh, England, as we've become accustomed to, those of us who've covered them for the last, well, two decades or so, certainly since 2008 when they failed to qualify, as we're accustomed to, they made qualification seem very easy. They always do. And and a 3-1 win over Italy, not to be sniffed at. Qualification with two games to spare. Um, Just how impressive. And is he actually, does he actually get the credit he deserves, Gareth Southgate, for doing what he's done with this England team in initially qualifying them comfortably for major tournaments? Oh, it's coming home, Andy. Of course it is. Always is this time of a tournament cycle when we've qualified. We always qualify easily, as you alluded to, uh, since McLaren. Even before that, that was a blip. Um, you know, pretty much going back to the 70s, we always qualify easily. Um, and it's been part of the problem is that builds expectation. The difference this time is I think some of those expectations uh, are founded. And it wasn't so much... The, the, I mean, we've not mentioned... All week, um, Bukayo Saka, who's been England's best player for two years, uh, yeah, and we've we've achieved that result without with him in the wings, waiting to come in and, and raise levels even higher. Uh, Jack Greenish came on briefly at the end against Italy. He's supposed to be our hundred million pound playmaker. He's coming off the bench, uh, and uh, you've got you've got play. Yeah, we, we didn't have a proper left back. Um, you know, this wasn't the strongest England team by any means, and yet Italy couldn't touch them. Uh, effectively. Um, there are still problems that Calvin Rice is not going to get any better all the time he's not playing football and, and that's perhaps a weak link in that double pivot. But but slowly and surely from Euro 2016, Southgate has not only put together, we didn't have any players, remember, in Euro 2016 after that, except for Wayne Rooney, who was our only player. We, we didn't have any people playing in the Premier League. You know, it was as bleak as it could be. And, and he's found players, he's built players up by giving them confidence. Saka, a great example, on an international stage before he was regularly playing uh, you know, in the Premier League. So yeah, a lot of that work he's, he's, he's put in. Um, and now we're pretty much home to first eleven, and we're, we're working on the reserves. It's a very strong place to be in. You know, six months ahead of a major tournament. Yeah, it's it's funny, Simon. What Matt says there about um, you know certain players almost going under the radar. You know, Saka not even really his absence not even noted. Grealish coming on in cameo roles. 
I did think that went right in the piece this morning that we all did about with Declan Rice, where he's now accepted that he's basically the facilitator for, for Jude Bellingham to go and show his stuff. You know, so Rice, in a way, is a is, is a big money support act for, for the stars of the show. And the stars of the show are Harry Kane. The star of the show was, to a certain extent, Marcus Rashford, Phil Foden. And Sam, we must mention, I'm not sure we can, I'm not sure we can add to the superlatives, but Jude Bellingham, you, you, you know, the, the world now, uh, if it hadn't before, has well and truly, you know, woken up to this phenomenal talent. Um, and clearly everyone, fingers crossed, that he's fit and healthy next summer. And could he be the difference maker for England? Bellingham could certainly be the difference maker. But going back to what um, Declan Rice has said, you know, that, that just speaks volume of the volumes for the the kind of player and person that he's um, he's developed into. How often have we spoken about England having golden generations, and the problem has always been that it's been that there's been teams and squads divided by rivalries. I mean, you know, I, I can remember covering England when when we had uh, Gerard Lampard and Scholes um, to choose from. And the problem there was that, that there wasn't anybody who was willing to sacrifice themselves and their role um, to um, for the good of the team. Well, I say there was nobody. Of course, we had Paul Scholes, who was arguably England's best midfield player at the time, having to to crowbar himself into the team on the left. And we didn't. We never saw the best of, of Paul Scholes. So it's really important that not only do we have those. Those world beaters, the likes of Jude Bellingham, the likes of Harry Kane, the likes of Saka, but we've also got players who are prepared to dig in and do the dirty work. And I, I can't, I don't think that that can be underestimated when you when you are hoping to win, um, you know, titles at international level. We saw Argentina, for example. We saw how how their team uh, last winter sacrificed themselves to get the best out of out of Messi. And it worked, and um, I think it, it all looks good for England at the moment. I, I don't think we should ever underestimate uh, qualifying for tournaments. Of course, it's easier now because it's not it's not just a top team. You know, I remember the qualification for the 1978 World Cup where England finished second to Italy despite beating them at Wembley and didn't go to the World Cup. You you had to finish top of top of your group, and that was a, a much tougher task than it is now. But like I say. Qualifying regularly and qualifying easy for tournaments shouldn't be underestimated. It is a it is a um it is a skill set that only the best team the best teams have to make it look so simple. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. And in the interest of fairness, I think we should say that this is not just a Gareth Southgate thing. I mean, ever since England lost on that fateful night, the Wally with the Brolly night, um, I mean, whatever, 2007, and didn't qualify for 2008, since then, 
England have literally been pretty much unbeatable in qualifying games for World Cups and European Championships. So that goes back a long way. That goes back to the Capello days. You know, they've actually, I think they've only lost one or two. I mean, I, in, in, in so many. And even then, I think it was a case of having already been qualified and then lost. I remember them losing to Ukraine in Capello's reign. They'd already qualified. So they, they have got a remarkable attitude towards um, qualifying. Obviously, what, what matters is what happens um, uh, in the finals. And, and so far, Gareth Southgate has done well in finals. But obviously, he needs to take that step further. We're now at a stage where everyone is saying, in football, that is, not just in English football, you speak to foreign journalists, foreign coaches, foreign players, they all envy the depth of Gareth Southgate's squad. However, he did in his starting lineup, which we assume is his first choice starting lineup, Matt mentioned a little tweak. So if we assume that the team he played against Italy is generally is going to be more or less the team he plays in the finals, apart from the fact that obviously he could bring Saka in for, say, Bowden or Rashford and Luke Shaw in for Trippier. I think that's probably what we're thinking, is it? That would still mean that he plays Maguire and Phillips, um, obviously whose club issues are well documented. Now, it's funny on Tuesday because I, the first piece I wrote on Tuesday, I'm bearing in mind like an hour into the game, I'm thinking about what to write, and I'm writing a piece about, well, how can he still, the loyalty towards Maguire and Phillips is beginning to look like stubbornness. Then, of course, when you have time to reflect on the whole piece, a great 3-1 win, you think, well, actually, are we going over the top? Have I got over the top? Are we going over the top about Maguire and Phillips not being able to play if they don't get regular club football? Is that actually completely essential? I mean, could it be that Maguire and Phillips go through this season with their clubs, stay in their Manchester clubs, play the odd game through injury, like Maguire certainly, you know, started the last Premier League game, and they'll play in cups. Is it really, really that essential? Or has Southgate got the attitude of a club team where he's happy to have Phillips and Maguire in there, even if they're not playing club football? In other words, um, Sam, I'll come to you first. Are we putting too much emphasis and highlighting too much the idea that Maguire and Phillips not in their first choice club teams, but in Southgate's first choice national team? I would have I would have said that is a, a possibility if I hadn't heard Calvin Phillips after straight after the game the other night actually admit that you know he 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 looked he looked just a, a step short of everything he just he just looked half a yard off the pace and when you're playing certainly when you're playing in central midfield something you can't afford and 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 let's be honest you know both Southgate um and Phillips admitted he was he was walking a bit of a tightrope at one point whether he was to pick up that second yellow card simply because he was a, he was a heartbeat off the off the pace so um I don't think we are underplaying it I think the penny certainly listening to uh, Calvin Phillips the other night I think the penny might have actually dropped and that he's now been beginning to realize that in January if he wants to protect his place in the England team for next summer's Euros, then he is going to have to move away from Manchester City. Even if it's just for a long spell, he's got to be playing more regular football. And I would say the same would go for, for Harry Maguire. Um, you know, England were very impressive defensively the other day um, in, in terms of limiting the, the number of chances that Italy had. But there were opportunities where, where we switched off at the back 
And in tournaments, those tend those those moments tend to be punished. And when they are punished, it's a it's a long it can be a long way back. So I think both players have got to got to look at whether um playing more regularly at another club from January to next summer will 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 help England you know, go to go to the Euros much better prepared. And I think Southgate is admitting himself it's not ideal that they're not playing more regular football. So, um, you know, I don't think we are overestimating that. I, I don't think we are, but I just wonder, I just wonder if, if even so, I, I think Southgate, yes, it would be more ideal. In an ideal world, that's what they'd be playing. And and, and there's clearly, a, you know, big anomalies, isn't it? You know, the, the Rico Lewis gets ahead of Cal. Okay, slightly different position, but at times... Rico Lewis can get ahead of Calvin Phillips, but it, but can't get in the England squad. I mean, there are there are obvious anomalies there. But Matt, if we say okay, well, Maguire and Phillips, they can't, you know, they can't play for England if they if they are essentially reserves their club. But who else? I mean, I mean, I mean, who else? What will that starting eleven look like come the first game in Germany next summer? The only thing I would say on that is they are slightly different situations. Uh, Harry Maguire uh, has kept his place, but I think in the cameo that he had again on uh, against Italy, uh, there was nothing to suggest that Mark Gahey can't be a top-class international defender by the summer with Stones to play alongside him. So if Maguire does continue in United reserves and does look off the pace, then I don't think Southgate have any qualms about going to a major tournament with that as his back, back bearing. Um, Phillips is different. He keeps going on about how he has doesn't have these defensive midfielders. And you look around and, you know, who would you put instead of him? Well, the only person you put instead of him is uh, Calvin Phillips, who's playing regularly. He's 27. You know, it's, it's easy to imagine him as close to 30 and at the end of his career. He's supposed to be at his peak. Two years ago, when we got to the Euro finals, he was our best player, voted for by everybody, pretty much. You know, he's not become a bad player just by sitting on the bench at Manchester City. What he's become, as Simon said, is as a player who's not quite on it um, from the first whistle, which can be catastrophic. And, and that early booking he picked up is a symptom of somebody who's not played enough really top-level football um, to do it. So if he gets that move, we're sorted. Otherwise, there is a dearth because we don't have that extra player. And that's what's going to put the, the, the other alternative – um, is the other person you could play up there is John Stones. It's a bit more radical, but we're better off for centre-backs. So perhaps a Stokes and Rice double pivot with Gehi and Maguire or Gehi and, yeah, again, Dunk has played well, I think, when he's played recently. But again, you start feeling a bit nervy then about how strong we are at the back. But he's the only other player who could step into that role at the moment. That's a good point, by the way. The, the John Stones situation. Um, we, we met, you mentioned Rico Lewis earlier, how Guardiola was preferring Rico Lewis over Calvin Phillips. But when when it came to that those last 20 minutes in the game at Arsenal and he was looking to reinforce the midfield, I mean, they ended up losing the game anyway, but when he was looking to reinforce that midfield, the player that he brought on into midfield was John Stones. It wasn't, it wasn't Calvin Phillips. So not only has, has Calvin Phillips kind of sunk behind Rico Lewis in the in the um, in the pecking order at Kovacic, but you know John Stones is now seen as a player who can operate in midfield rather than as a centre back.
it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. By the way, just as an aside, had he been a fit, I thought he would have played John Stones there from the stars against Arsenal. And I think that might have cost them, but then we, we, we might come on to that. Um, I think, listen, my, my point of view is I, I think I will be surprised at whatever happens that we don't, and assuming they're fit, I will be very surprised that Maguire and Phillips do not start that first game of the European Championships. He will do what he can at Southgate's afternoon. Matt, you mentioned the word in in in, in um, conjunction with John Stones going into midfield as radical. Gareth, there's a lot of very, very good things, but radical certainly isn't one of them. So I don't think we'll be seeing that. Um, I'll tell you one player who, who, who did impress me on Tuesday night, and certainly in patches he impressed me in the way he took his goal. And he did when he was with England on in the last camp. I think it was the game up in... Did he play in Scotland? I can't, I can't remember. Anyway, it was Marcus Rashford. I mean, and I'm, I'm now seeing Rashford looking happier, more direct, more threatening when he's on international duty than I am when he's on club duty. And bear in mind, he signed a long-term deal at United in the summer. Um, and I just think then that that's sort of symptomatic of what's going on at United. So I'm going to come on to United now and whether or not you know, the ongoing takeover. First of all, Simon, I'll tell you what, let's just find out where are we with the takeover. Is there a vote today? There's a board meeting today. Now, whether there'll be a vote on the on the takeover, only the Glazers know because everything is done with the secrecy of a of a Politburo at Old Trafford. You know, they they've they put out the statement last November that they were having this review, this strategic review. Um uh, six months before that they they um, made a commitment to the fans to keep them um, more in the loop in terms of communication, and they delivered absolutely nothing on that. And and you know they don't they don't keep the fans informed. They don't keep anybody informed. It's all kind of that for the last nine months. It's been whispering, counter whisper from the Ratcliffe and and Shager team camps, and um, and it's just been kind of typical of the Glazer reign um, since two thousand and five. They, you know, they actually said, um, or, or the, the warning was there when they came to Old Trafford uh, back then, that they they just don't communicate with fans. It was it's exactly the same at Tampa Bay Buccaneers. There were there were protests um, in the early days there that they didn't communicate with fans as owners should communicate with fans. Um, so um, from what I can gather, I don't think there is going to be a vote on the on the Jim Ratcliffe proposal today. Um, I think that's the only the only proposal left on the table, and they've got to uh, decide whether that's one they want to accept, um, and the kind of um, 
the asking price for that really is to hand over um, the, the the football operation to to Ineos, and uh, and they look they they take care of all of the business. Whether that's um, acceptable to the Glazers, we, we wait to see. Matt, how how does that work? I mean, I'm reading. So first of all, how could it be good for the club if for split ownership, someone having twenty five percent and the seventy five percent elsewhere? And then how does it work that the person who owns 25%, assuming this goes through, by the way, it's a big if. You, you, you know, once again, we are reading that it's going to be a delay. Well, you, you know, there's been delay after delay after delay. How does it work? Is it a good thing, this model of ownership? And how does it work that, say, Sir Jim Ratcliffe will have control of football operations? On football operations, what a football club is essentially 99% about anyway. Doesn't everything else follow from there? No, it's only twenty five percent of uh, clubs' business, apparently. Um, yeah, no, it 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 doesn't work. Well, it well, it works up right up to the key point, which is they'll come in. Like Ineos can come in and say, "Right, this is how we should run the sporting side. We need this, this, this. Um, that's what we need to put in place. We've got all our experts. There you go. That's a blueprint to win us titles. Right? Okay, it's going to cost us so much. Oh, well, that's your problem. You then go to the level above, and they say we haven't got the money for that. You know, it's all very well them coming up with solutions and a new sporting side is desperately something that United need um, and breathe energy into the club like like has happened at Arsenal, for instance. That energy is kind of permeated throughout and boosted their chances and their prospects in recent years. But goodness knows United need that. But to, if you want to be serial winners, like Manchester United aim to be, like Arsenal perhaps aren't ready to be yet, but... But certainly Manchester United, that's that's what the agenda is. You need to have a club, an entire club, an ownership that are geared towards winning football matches, winning trophies, you know, winning just being successful. Roman Abramovich's Chelsea, for instance, who um who came in no bones about it. His only interest, he wasn't about dividends and taking back money and keeping money for it. It was to win titles. Same situation in Manchester United. City, you need the whole ownership. So, for as much as Jim Ratcliffe can achieve with his twenty-five percent, at the end of the day, he's going to have to have money voted, a budget voted for him by a board that is seventy-five percent still owned by the Glazers, effectively, uh, and that's where the stumbling block's going to come. Are they going to be willing to commit the money that it takes to be a successful top football club this year, uh, these years? Uh, and the answer is probably no still because it's the same owners. You know, it, it'll be better, but it won't be good enough. You, you say it'll be better. I mean, there, there is no – I mean, what is there in, in any officer's track record that suggests they can come in and run the football operations? Listen, they've had mixed fortunes at um, Nice um, and with their Swiss club, Lausanne. They, they bankrolled an America's Cup um, bid that didn't go too well. And, of course, they've taken Team Sky. I think he won six out of seven Tour de France um, titles. And um, and basically, you know, the Ineos Grenadiers aren't exactly pulling up any trees at the moment. In fact, they're going through a bit of a, a, bit of a crisis. Is there any suggestion, um, Simon, that Sir Jim Ratcliffe and, and who knows, Sir Dale Brailsford, I think United need more than marginal gains, don't they, if they're going to get back in, in, into the mix right at that elite level? The problem that Jim Ratcliffe has got is that the same issues will remain as long as the Glazers are there. The club are a billion pounds in debt. Those debts will need servicing. 
the way they service those debts is through the profits generated by the football club. The Glazers want their dividends. Other shareholders want their dividends. They've got a stadium that's not fit for purpose that is so bad that they couldn't give guarantees that it will be ready for the you know the European Championships in what five years, um, which is probably the most damning indictment of the Glazer ownership that they kind of presided over Old Trafford, falling from what you know the, the, the iconic ground in English football to something that you know the fans can't even keep dry when they go and watch their team. Um, so the problem that Jim Ratcliffe has got is all all these issues that have held United back. Um, you know, even before Sir Alex Ferguson retired, all these issues are still issues that have got to be addressed and have got to be met. And um, I think if Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos think they're just going to come in and kind of um, wave this magic Ineos wand and all ills will be cured in terms of the sporting direction of the club, um, I think they might be um, they, they might be in for, a, in for a bit of a shock. Um, you know, how many managers have United burned through in the last 10 years trying to get it right on the pitch? You know, we're, we're talking about quality managers from David Moyes, who is an, you know, was an established Premier League manager and who is, is again, one of the best, certainly best British managers in the Premier League. Louis van Gaal, um, Jose Mourinho, these are football men who couldn't, you know, who couldn't work under the glazes because they were hamstrung. So how um, Ineos are going to achieve what what those people couldn't achieve, I, I, I don't know. Especially when, like you say, the track record, certainly in football, is not something that, that you would kind of, uh, you know, write on a banner and wave above your head. I think you're right. I think, I think I think the problems are so deep and so broad that it struck me, you know, for example, that you've United is still a, you know, massive commercial entity. And hence why the Glazers are probably still involved and why, you know, they've never shown any, no matter what they say, particular signs of wanting to sell lock, stock, and barrel. Because they think it's still a cash cow, you know, and there's and these and they think it'll still um um it'll still Become more valuable commercial wise, and to a certain extent, that you know it is it appears to be holding that commercial pull. But I just think you know how about going forward? Again, you're right. Well, okay, well we'll get this new sporting direction and we'll attract these players. But at the moment, Manchester United. I remember, you know, sadly I'm too old enough to remember how United was the biggest pulling, you know, the biggest attraction to a football player you could possibly imagine, really. It's not any longer. I mean, it really isn't any longer. I, it, it just struck me watching the game the other night, the England game. I looked at Rashford doing okay, and I thought, well, you know what? Could you, you know, where were United? Well, we know where they were. They tried to get him and couldn't get Jude Bellingham. You know, they couldn't convince him as as a, however old he was then, 17, 16, maybe 17. Harry Kane. He's gone to Bayern Munich instead. Bellingham's at Real Madrid. And I just thought to myself, you know, it, it's sort of almost symptomatic of, of where they are now that they're, they're going to have this issue of getting players there who can then get them back to the level that, that, that they were at. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's however it goes. And, and, and again, the fact that this is just going to drag on and on and on, I think just makes a farce of it. And, you know, um, listen, whether it'll have any impact on the playing 
um, staff. I'm not sure, but while we're on the playing staff, I just wanted a couple of things on that, Simon. Just a quick word. Uh, just that I'm not sure how far we can take it now. How far, how fair that we can do it. But Jaden Sancho. I mean, what is what is what is the latest there, and what is going on with Jaden Sancho? There is no latest. It's just a standoff. You know, Jaden Sancho Sancho won't um, issue a, certainly won't issue a public apology. And Eric Senhag won't pick him until he has. So we're, we're basically at a standstill, and we've got um, yet another player at Manchester United who is going to be sidelined until something gives. And, I, and I've got a feeling that that's something will probably be the January transfer window. Um, you know, and and let's be honest now, it is it, it, it's it's a declaration now of of how important Jane and Sancho is to Manchester United that they have kind of left him to stew and left him to say, look, you know, that that is a situation you apologise or you, you you don't get back into the team. Um, so, you know, if that was a, you know, if that was a Marcus Rashford, if that was a Casemiro, I'm pretty sure that 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 greater efforts would, would be being made to to bridge that, to bridge that gap because, it, you know, of their importance to the team. Jaden Sancho doesn't have that kudos at Old Trafford He's not seen as one of the, you know, what one of the first names on the team sheet. And I think um, as soon as um, as soon as the January transfer window opens, United will be will be looking at their options. But again, it, it, how many times have we said this about United? They're left with a player where basically then they'll probably end up paying him to leave the club. Um, you know, th- less than three years after he was going to be their their great hope. You know, their their kind of. Uh, Speaking for for a bright new future, um, and, and once again, you know that they're left with a with a player on that on their hands who, who they're trying to get out of the door, and they'll also not get the type of transfer fee they would have they would have expected for him. You know, had had there not been these issues, that's the problem. I mean, you know, if, if you ostracize a player like this, then you're suggesting, even though of course last year they they suggested that his problems were, were maybe more complex than than. Um, than we might have first thoughts, but now they're sort of ostracising the player, which suggests to everyone that Sancho has an attitude problem. So then, how do you go and sell that player? You know, for top dollar, there won't be a sale. Clubs will look at it, and you know, it will be a well. You know, Sancho's a potentially a, a top player. Let's bring him in for six months and see. Let's bring him in for a year and see with an option. You know, so uh, again, again, not ideal for a club that will be desperately trying to come up with funds to. To strengthen our ten half squad in, in January. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Matt, uh, Simon says about Sancho not being, you know, one of the first names on the team sheets, even if everything was hunky-dory behind the scenes. Um and I agree with that. Having said that, having seen United recently, and having seen him in one of the most fortunate wins I can recall for a while against Brentford last time out in the Premier League, they need all the help they can get. They've got Sheffield United away on Saturday night, eight o'clock kickoff. Um, 
Would you put it past Chef you to upset Manchester United if you call an upset on Saturday? Well, you used to call it Fortress Bramalay, wouldn't you? But recent results suggest that's crumbling a little bit. I mean, it is an incredible stadium to go to when you're not feeling on top of your own game. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, yeah, I, I, they'll they'll be determined. I mean, they'll play up to the, the fixture and they'll give Manchester United a run for their money, certainly uh, more so than, than they have done perhaps recently. And it is about character, and there are too many people in that United side pointing fingers at other players and too many other reasons for things to go wrong that, that if you do get caught out by a, a fueled up Yorkshire crowd, then, uh, you know, you can you can find yourself suddenly knocked off kilter. Um, of course, form books suggest that United should be comfortable enough, but, you know, it isn't like that. It's about the mental capacity to, to get through these games after coming back from a long international break. So, yeah, they're vulnerable. Let's not make any bones about it. While we're, we'll, we'll go across Manchester, Simon, um, while we're in that particular city, and um, we've alluded to the defeat at the Emirates, um, which followed on from the defeat at Molyneux. Um, I think, you know, some people tongue-in-cheek, you know, saying bit of a crisis. I mean, I know when we spoke to Jack Grealish um when he was on England duty and said about City, oh, like a bit of a crisis. He obviously, you know, couldn't stop laughing at the idea that two wins on uh, two defeats on the spin was a crisis. However, considering that hasn't happened for a long time, is it five years that they've lost back-to-back Premier League games? That's a crisis, isn't it? Crisis, not 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 quite a crisis at the moment, but um, I think questions have to be have to be asked. Um, clearly, I mean. I, Listen, this isn't a state secret by any stretch of the imagination. Everybody can spot it a mile away. They've missed Rodri for for the three games that he's uh, that he's been missing. Um, lost all three games, um, and um, and and clearly that you know that is an issue that that will resolve itself now that he's served his suspension. But the other thing that City missing is Kevin De Bruyne. Um, again. Um, some players are irreplaceable. Rodri for City, Rodri's one, and Kevin De Bruyne is another. And obviously, there, there are still a few weeks um, left before De Bruyne will be will be back in the team. Probably not before Christmas. Um, so you you know, City have City have, they're just lacking a spark at the moment, and they're just kind of again they're just a, a sort of heartbeat behind. Where they normally are, it's, it just isn't as as fluent as 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 we've come to expect from from them. Um, but the danger is that they're they're still probably the only team out there that can string fourteen, fifteen wins on the bounce together, which they tend to do when when their backs are up against the wall. So, but I mean, you know, after losing losing at Wolves and then losing again um, at Arsenal. Probably the last team that you would want to face is, is Brighton, who are quite capable of going to the the, the Etihad, and um, and basically giving City a, a, a dose of their own medicine in terms of being able to keep the ball, and um, and that's really important at the Etihad is to have that kind of courage to pass the ball and believe that you can keep possession. Um, so that'll be quite an intriguing contest on on Saturday. Yeah, I think it will. I, you know, it's funny with City. I I completely agree with you um, about you know it's funny really. But when people are saying about Rodri's absence, clearly the results in his absence show his importance. However, this City team over the entire Pep 
rain. Um, I've always thought that, you know, the good thing about it is, is that you'll never say someone is absolutely fundamental to the fortunes of the team. You know, it's always, he's always had such a great squad in terms of strength, not necessarily in numbers, but in terms of strength of 18, 19, 20 players, that you wouldn't make what essentially is an excuse. You know, Rodri's absence essentially is an excuse. They've still got players there. You know, Calvin Phillips is still on the bench. You know, Kovacic is still in there. Rico Lewis is still in there. They've still got... To me, the Rodri thing was a little bit of a an example of, like, well, how now maybe people think that Sithian is strong in depth as normal, that you have to be so reliant on one player. And I agree with you, with you totally that if there is someone who's irreplaceable, certainly in terms of the service that someone like Erling Haaland gets, it's Kevin De Bruyne. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, he's the one who can, you know, the, the 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 sort of four, five, six yard reverse pass inside that opens up defenses. That wasn't there against Arsenal. You know, we saw an unbelievably low amount of efforts on goal. I think it was four, wasn't it? On goal, four or five efforts on goal. And I think that's what would be um, concerning. I also think, in general, with City, you can't. You can't possibly um, again Grealish, and again his absence because you know he, he he went through his dead leg, and now that affected him. He's he's not sparked this season like he sparked in the second half of last season. You know Bernardo similarly. I also think Grealish did allude to it, albeit like in a half joking matter, saying he turns up with Man City this season for first week of training, and it is literally well what now after the treble, and even subconsciously I think. You know, there's got to be some sort of reaction. The amount of the mental and physical exertion and strain of doing what they did last season, I don't care what anyone says, it has to have an effect this season. You know, it has to have some sort of, you know, well, what else can we do now? We've done that. How do you top that? So I do think, I think, again, I think the City, um, getting everyone firing again, getting De Bruyne back, I think if they... The phrase sounds wrong because they're such a brilliant side. But hang on, and there, if they're there, if they're around the top two or three, as in similar points come Christmas, New Year, um, they'll, they'll they'll go on and win again. However, Matt, um, what I also think that other teams around City have now improved, and of course, one of those teams that have improved, haven't been leading the title race for so long last year, is Arsenal. They showed that when they won again against City on um, on Sunday, would you have, the bookmakers don't, but would you have Arsenal now, in terms of favouritism, ahead of City for the Premier League title? In a word, no. Um, but what I would say is that that win, um, uh, Arsenal, what was significant about the Arsenal win against City was that Arsenal seemed to want it more. It's all those reasons you said. You know, they've still got the hunger. And it actually showed, I think, in the closing stages, in the challenges, in the 50-50 balls. Uh, and they won that battle uh, as a battle, as a, as a physical contest, because they seem to have more desire for the fight, uh, which is a real worry for Guardiola, and he's going to got to get on top of that quickly because I thought Jack Grealis was a little bit too honest. If we're, you know, And not only that, but pointing out all the ways they could have made the season better have already gone to them. They're not going to be invincible. They're not going to win the quadruple because they're out of the Carabao Cup. So City are there for the taking, but what, what I would say is I still think they have the strength in depth, which is effectively what told for them last year, that Arsenal's are still a little bit short of. Um, they are some crucial injuries. Saka, for instance, who we're not sure quite whether he'll be ready or not. 
um, yeah, how he's gone in these this fortnight. Um, but but he's he's a player that, and and they need to keep scoring goals and. Um, and I think Jesus has been key to that, but still not 100% convincing as a as a goal scorer to lead a title challenge. Um, so there's little areas. The defence is looking a lot stronger. Saliba is coming on leaps and bounds. And the way he played Ireland uh, the week before was was a real feather in his cap. But but there are just... Uh, Odegaard's still playing brilliantly, but there are just a couple of gaps that, that they can't fill if... if if those players go missing. And over the course of a season, I think that's why City have still probably just about got the edge uh, with Guardiola stamping down on that that attitude problem, if you like, um, that there is perhaps knocking a couple of percent off their performances at the moment. Yeah. I don't think they've got much missing, man. I really don't. And I think, I mean, you missed one player out there that, that we've spoken about already on this podcast, and that's Declan Rice. And this is a guy who's going to, like, you know, he, 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 he will touch wood. Uh, fitness permitting, this this is a guy who will play 30 Premier League games for you. He'll start every game. He'll, he'll probably finish most games. I mean, I, I don't know whether he's started finishes all games so far. But I just think he'll be such a huge presence in that squad. And you mentioned defence better. Well, you know, I, again, I agree with you. Saliba was fantastic against Harlem, but Declan Rice was superb as well. Um, I, I, I think they're the real deal. I really do. However, Simon, they will, I think, be, you know, tested on... Is it Saturday evening? Is it five thirty uh, at Chelsea? Just showing at the moment, Chelsea signs that you know Pochettino is getting to grips one with a squad clearly which is you know quite unwieldy and quite hard to I would imagine get to know properly, and also with a very long injury list that he's got. But he's just showing signs that that that, that, that maybe he's getting there. Sterling in great form last time out should be a good test for Arsenal and and for Chelsea on um, on Saturday. Yeah, the, the spark, you can just see the the, the first sparks of a of, of something um, something that Chelsea fans can can kind of hang the hats on a little bit. Um, but in terms of Arsenal, I, I what what impressed me against City most of all was we saw in the two games last year that Arsenal thought they could go toe to toe with City and were absolutely destroyed in in both games. And I know they you know first half at the Emirates. They 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 managed to sort of exert a, a little bit of pressure, but it really was kind of men against boys at the end of both games. What 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 impressed me this time was that it it, it was played. They played it like a big game where you, you hang in there. You don't try and sort of flatten the team in the first twenty minutes. You just make sure that you hang into the game and that you don't concede a goal. And that these really big games, these title deciding games, a set they can be settled by a moment of brilliance, or as this one was, a moment of outrageous good luck. Um, you know, with the deflection. Um, but big games are like that, and 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 Arsenal played that game like a title chasing team plays plays a title defining game. Uh, unlike last year, where they just looked like they were really out of their comfort zone. Certainly, the second half of the Emirates and and the full ninety minutes at, at the Etihad, and I think that's encouraging for from an Arsenal perspective. I would also say that that their big flaw is that they have not got a player who is going to weigh in with twenty plus goals this season. They, I think, they really do need to address as as a centre forward um, in January because I think that in in the big games, 
and in the tight games at the at the back end of the season, that is when you need a, a player who's going to stick the one chance in the back of the net. So I think that's something that Arteta will want to address. But yeah, it's going to be a big test for them on Saturday night because they're up against a Chelsea team that that is growing in confidence and and he's starting to show um, a, a little bit of the the Pochettino style. So um, yeah, let's see, let's see how that goes. I'm I'm, I'm going to Stamford Bridge. I'm looking forward to it. You're going to Stamford Bridge? How come you're going to Anfield, pal? For the big one? Well, I've got Stamford Bridge. Now, it's, it's a big one on Merseyside, mate. Nowhere else. <laughs> I'll come on to that very I'll come on to that now because when I mentioned there before that I think Arsenal have improved and that's why I think it'll be a really exciting title race. But not only because Arsenal have improved this season, Newcastle improved, Spurs improved, and I think Newcastle have improved, by the way. I'm going by that win over PSG, and I think they will get better. I And Spurs, we haven't had time to talk about um, today. Um, Newcastle, I think it's a five-way title race. I really do. I think it's going to be a five-way title race with the, with the, the side that Simon just mentioned, Liverpool being the... Because I think they've improved. Clearly, they had a fairly flat season last season. Again, maybe as a bit of a hangover from their efforts of the previous season when they were just epped in, in quite agonising fashion by City. I think they've, in terms of attacking options, I see Liverpool as having as good an attacking lineup um, as anyone in the Premier League. You know, I look at those five, I look at Jota, you know, Nunes, um, Diaz, um, Saleh, um, Gakpo, and I think pair many three from that five, and you've got like, you know, really, really potent attacking options. In terms of transfer business in the summer, Fabino and Henderson gone, McAllister and Jobberlai in. It's just, you know, I think they are going to be a formidable force this year. However, however, Everton, even when they've been beating this season, I've been had good reports about them. And now they're just, you know, put a couple of good performances together. It should be a cracking midside derby. Simon, you're not going to the last match. How do you see this one is going to go at um, this parochial spat up in Merseyside? Well, this parochial spat I'll be watching from Stamford Bridge as well. So, um, uh, but uh, I just hope that for all the talk, I mean, Liverpool have been notoriously bad for their twelve thirty kickoffs, haven't they? After international breaks, I just hope that version two point zero has an alarm clock function uh, and that they get themselves up for this one. Because, yeah, on paper with that attacking line, that they should be comfortable, even with the form back form book traditionally going out the window, all the rest of it. Um, it used to be in 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 the old days when Liverpool used to win the title every year that defences won uh, titles. I think these days now it's goals that win titles. You need to have the solid defence to be a contender, but but what takes you over the line is having that front threat, which, like you say, for Liverpool is is up there with anybody's. Um, and Everton, yeah, they'll be up for it, but but I I think they'll see. I think Klopp's team will see a resurgent Everton as the obvious thread that it is. There'll be no complacency. They'll know that they'll be in for a battle. And I think they'll have enough within themselves to see off that battle. And as much as Everton have built a little bit of confidence, they're still a long way short of where they need to be. And uh, and I think Liverpool will win that one. I mean, I, I, just quickly on that, what is it with the 12.30 
I, I know because once again, I think after the the next international break, I think Liverpool City's been moved to twelve thirty. Is it City Liverpool or Liverpool City? I can't remember which round it is. I was looking. It, apparently, it's the thirteenth time that Liverpool have played a twelve thirty kickoff after an international break, which is kind of more than double any other club. I don't see what the problem is, apart from, I don't know, there's always a kind of, um, it's a bit like a sort of Sunday morning game, isn't it? Liverpool are a team that thrive on energy. And the devil, you know, this year, the devil's back with Liverpool. They they they, they look re-energised. They look like, you know, they, 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 you know, they've fallen behind in a few games, but they just keep coming. It's the Liverpool that we came to expect under Jurgen Klopp again. They've just got that energy back. And I just wonder whether the twelve thirty kickoff just kind of, even if it's just a couple of percent, you know. I, I think Wayne Rooney said about it. There's nothing worse than shoveling down uh, a bowl full of pasta um, at eight o'clock in the morning. And and I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's something in that 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 players don't particularly like that twelve thirty kickoff. And when you rely on energy like Liverpool, Liverpool at their best are energetic and they they kind of you know they swarm over teams. And I just wonder whether that has got, even if it's just by, you know, a couple of percent. I don't know. I'm, I'm clutching at straws here. I'm trying to, I'm trying to find a reason, you know. The, 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 the reality is I'm not going to clue why. Exactly. I, th- I think it's a very interesting stat about them getting, keep getting picked, but I think it has absolutely zero impact on, on, the, on the outcome of the games. That's, we'll wrap up, actually. I haven't spoken about two Derby games. Um, just very quickly, Simon... Stamford Bridge and Anfield. There is Anfield, isn't it? Stamford Bridge and Anfield. How's it going at those two games? Um, Scoreline. Well, just, just even a winner, loser, or a draw. Uh, I'm going to go um, draw at Stamford Bridge, um, and Liverpool win at Anfield. Chelsea win at Stamford Bridge. Liverpool win at Anfield. I think Arsenal win at Stamford Bridge, and it'll be a draw at Anfield. A high-scoring draw should be a thriller. And having said all that. I won't beat any of them. I'm off to Paris for to cheer on our rugby boys, mate. Let's hope England get through to the World Cup final. Let's hope England football get through to the Euro finals next summer and finally win a major tournament. But thanks for coming on this morning. Thanks to you all for watching or listening. And we'll be back at the same time next week. Hold up. 